going to be in Ruth chapter 4 this morning. Ruth chapter 4. We're going to get dangerously close to finishing this book, but next week will be the official finish of the book. So we're going to get about the first half, first uh, two-thirds of the Ruth chapter 4. I'm pretty excited to dive in this morning. We're going to be talking about uh, this morning a, a topic that gets talked about in church a lot. It's, it's, it's a topic that we, we, we kind of throw around, but it's become, at least in my opinion, one of those things that's like a, a churchy word, uh, a churchy idea that we kind of know in our lingo and we say a lot, but we don't really, I, I'm not sure that we fully know what we're saying whenever we say it, because it's just become shorthand for so many different things. And it's something that we don't talk about outside of church very much, uh, but we do a, a little bit, but not, not a whole lot, even though we do it almost every day. We're going to talk about the idea of redemption. Uh, and so b- before you go all church lingo on me and immediately start connecting all the dots and saying, ah, it has something to do with Jesus, has something to do with the cross, has something to do with blood, I think, uh, and, and you start kind of pulling all this together, uh, I, I think what, what, what I want to do is I want to look at a little bit about how that word works and how we use that idea of redemption outside of the church world before we get into talking about how we use it in the Bible, how we use it and how we talk about it in here. For me, when I hear redemption, I'm immediately taken to one of two places in my life. The first is I go back about 10 to 15 uh, years ago, and there was a time in, uh, a, a time and place in the world where where most of the world was, con- I say most of the world, where a very small segment of the world was utterly consumed uh, with, with going to Walgreens and CVS and, uh, and, and Kroger and those places and couponing. And you would go to these places, and uh, this kind of golden age of couponing it seems to have passed at this point mostly, but uh, about 10 to 15 years ago, they had this thing set up where uh, if you played your cards right, if you did it exactly right, you could parlay about $5 into uh, 35 razors, 5 cans of shaving cream, 9 sticks of deodorant, 4 or 5 bottles of Tide, and a few boxes of cereal. But you would have to play it just right. Anybody in here do that? Anybody in here do that? At least on like a, a little bit of, of a, a little bit. Nobody? A few, all right, I guess y'all weren't as poor as me. I had to do that. We did that uh, a little bit. And, and uh, the, the thing is, I, there was about a six-month window, maybe a year window, and I swear to you, I still have razors from that window of whenever we got those. Of course, I don't need them quite as much as I did. I didn't have a beard th- then, so I used them a lot more, and now they've just gotten stuck on a, uh, on a shelf. But you could get these things for, for next to nothing if you played it just right. But playing it just right meant you had to get to CVS or Walgreens before all the other people did. And so you would have to go, likely before church, you would probably have to punch an old lady that got the last bottle of Tide so that you could, uh, you could get that. Uh, and then you would have to find somewhere to store all that stuff whenever you got home because you had a six-month supply of this random thing that you only kind of halfway uh, use. And so for, for, for a little while, I was one of these people, and I loved the game, but I hated playing the game because it was exhausting. Somehow the rush of getting a free stick of deodorant was really like a legitimate rush. I don't understand how that works, but, uh, but man, it, it was a rush. Uh, but 
But then, uh, you know, for, for a while there, it was like, okay, I don't, I don't think I can do this anymore. I, this is exhausting. I've got $40 in extra bucks, and I have no idea what to buy now because nothing's on sale this week. So what, do I, so what do I do? And I just eventually said, enough's enough. I can't do this anymore. But if you looked on all those coupons, what you would see on those coupons is, is two things. One, it would say something like cash value, and then it would also say something about redemption Value And if you've ever looked, and I swear I thought this was going to be a much better picture than it ended up being, because you can't read this stuff down here on the bottom, but, but what it says down here towards the bottom uh, is that the redemption value for this is going to be $1.99, uh, where you can, uh, you can redeem this coupon and you get that money back and you would do it there. But it also says cash value 0.001 cent. So very, very, very little, one, one hundredth of a penny. Uh, and, and that's on all these coupons. I've always been super intrigued by that. Why in the world does it have this where if I could manage to get all of these coupons together uh, and I could get enough of them together, I could actually get a penny. I could actually get some money back just for the coupons. And so I went and did some research on this. And I can tell you it's not nearly as exciting as you would think it is. Um, it has something to do with, with, with trading stamps and things that were popular in the 50s. Uh, uh, the, the 40s, 50s, and a little bit in the 60s, but then kind of disappeared in the 70s, kind of disappeared. It's not something that we use anymore, but coupons kind of fell under the same regulations as these trading stamps. And in order to get around some of these laws, they had to have an actual cash value. I know that doesn't help you understand anything of how it works, but that's about as deep as my understanding of it uh, gets, and it's all I got time for this morning. So the point is, they had a redemption value and a cash value. I know how much I can get for these, and I'm sure somewhere out there, there's some crazy person that just has stacks of these that turns them in to get like 22 cents. Uh, and and they, they had this. They had a redemption value, what the coupon is worth, what the retailer would give me in exchange for that little square of paper. The second place that I knew the word redemption from was that as a kid, I thought this was the most amazing deal ever. But now, now as an adult, I realize that it may be the biggest ripoff ever. And it makes me wonder why I wasn't smarter as a kid, honestly. Uh, it's it's the, rede- the ticket redemption counter at Showbiz slash Chuck E. Cheese, right? You know what I'm talking about? How many people remember Showbiz? At, like, all right, so there's a few of you. I'm not the only like, old person in here. The rest of you are like Chuck E. Cheese people, right? Uh, and you remember Chuck E. Cheese. You know Chuck E. Cheese. And that was the place. And you, for $15 on skee-ball, another $20 on Papa Shot, and another $10 on Whack-A-Mole, you could redeem an entire armload of tickets. Like You can see the tickets over here on the, the side. Man, that's what it was all about because the pizza wasn't great. Uh, but as a kid, all pizza is good, so it's fine. But the, really, the deal was you wanted the, the, the ticket, and you would take those tickets up there, and for this whole armload of tickets, you could walk away with a six-inch foam airplane that was the coolest thing ever and would break within about three flights, uh, and if you even got it put together before it broke. Uh, and so you would get that. You would get a Chinese finger trap, a bouncy ball, and an eraser. Now, you spent three hours getting all those tickets in order to, to get those things that you walked away with, but you felt amazing whenever you walked away with that. Those little tickets were literally worth more than their weight in gold. 
Uh, and you would just count them up, and I always remembered I would pray that I would get the nice guy behind the counter so that whenever I had three tickets left and there was something in the five-ticket slot, he would let me round up so that I could get the really cool eraser instead of, like, the really small thing. Um, you, you, you needed to have all this stuff so that you could, you could turn in the tickets and you could redeem them for something cool. So that's it. That's my paradigm for redemption. Kind of those two things, that's how we use the word redeem and redemption in the, 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 the larger world. We don't talk about it much side of that outside of the church world. But then when we get into the church world, we, we forget that meaning of the word redemption, how that word works outside the church world. And then we start talking about other things within the church. And it means something kind of like salvation, which is another word. I don't think we fully understand what it means, but it roughly means something kind of like salvation. And the problem is, whenever we just kind of generally apply a definition that we don't fully understand to a word that's as important in the Bible as redeem and as redemption, we miss out on some of the most beautiful pictures that Scripture has to offer. Some, that, so, some pictures that show us truly what it is that God has done on our behalf and what it is that God is doing whenever we uh, are with him. We miss out on some beautiful things that show us how little we are worth, but also just how valuable God has deemed that we really are. So let's look in Ruth chapter 4, and I'm going to do what I can to catch you up to speed if you've not been here at some point in the last few weeks, catch you up to speed of where we're at. We're looking at this as like this, this little like mini television series, episode one, chapter one. Naomi and Elimelech uh, are the, the people who get us started. They move out of Bethlehem, a uh, young couple in the midst of a famine. They move out, they take their sons, and they go and settle in, a land, uh, in the land of Moab, foreign country, enemy to Israel, but they weren't in a famine. Uh, and Israel was. And so this is all happening in the time of the judges, this dark period we've been studying all summer uh, long. And they go and they go to Moab and they're supposed to just be there for a little while. But they end up putting their roots down. Their sons get married to uh, two gals that come into our story, Ruth and Orpah. Uh, and before any children are born to these couples, all of the men die. Uh, the dad, Elimelech, dies. The sons, Malon and Kilion, they die. And what's left is these three widows. And Naomi, in her grief, becomes bitter and wants to go back home to Bethlehem where she's heard the food is back and the grain is growing again. She just wants to go back because, as you can imagine, she is grief-stricken. Her entire, all the men in her life are gone. It's left these three widows in a very dangerous and precarious uh, uh, spot and and she decides she wants to go back home in her bitterness against God. And she urges her daughters-in-law to go back to their homes where they can start over in Moab. One does, Orpah, she goes back to her home in Moab. But Ruth, Ruth in an incredible display of, of kindness and love, refuses to leave Naomi, makes the beautiful promise that so many of us have heard, where you go, I will go, where you lodge, I will lodge, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful picture in the midst of so much brokenness. And episode one ends and they are back in Bethlehem, these two widows, single women trying to get by, the famine is over and they're trying to figure out how in the world are we going to make it. That was episode one fade scene and we move to episode two and this is the episode where we met our man Boaz my guy 
And Ruth has gone out to the fields to take advantage of this kind of built-in welfare system called gleaning uh, and kind of pick up the scraps that get left behind as they are uh, as they are, they are pulling in some of the harvest, they're pulling in some of the grain. Uh, and Boaz notices her while she is out there and, and says he wants to take care of her, being the good and godly man that he is. He, he blesses her, he prays for her, and he says, come work with our other, uh, the other women, come move up with them. You don't have to sit back in the back and wait for what's left. Come up and get the full supply, the full bounty. You're working hard. You come up. They'll take care of you. They'll protect you. All will be well. And he sends her away with this prayer of blessing and with a full sack of food. And episode two ends with this kind of cryptic smile on on Naomi's face, Ruth's mother-in-law, when she learns that Boaz's field is the field that Ruth just so happened to end up in. She smiles and mentions some cryptic remark about Boaz being a relative and a redeemer. And that's where episode two ends. And then last week we saw episode three. Harvest is over at this point. Uh, A month or two has passed and Boaz and his men are now on the threshing floor where they're kind of bringing in the harvest and separating out the grain. It's, It's kind of a party scene a little bit, a big celebration of the end of all their hard work from the growing season and Naomi comes up with a scheme for Ruth to get super uh, gussied up and dressed up, take a shower, fix her hair, put on some perfume, go down there where the men are and the men are doing the work, uh, and, and just kind of show up at Boaz's feet in the middle of the night after he's, uh, he's fat and happy and had his fill, and just hope that Boaz gets the picture of what he's supposed to do at this point. This was what we saw uh, last week, and really just kind of get the idea of what Ruth is putting out there. But when Ruth does this, she leaves nothing to chance. She's not going to wait for Boaz to figure out what is happening. You remember uh, in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, whenever she shows up at his feet and he says, Who are you? And she answers, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. We looked at this passage a little bit uh, last week. And that word pops up again, redeemer, that that he is a redeemer. And we talked a little bit about what that would mean, what that redemption means, but we didn't get into a whole lot of details. But what we do know is that our man Boaz is a redeemer. But what is a redeemer? What is it that that he is supposed to do? What does it mean for him to be a redeemer? What, what is it that, that is communicated? Now, the original uh, hearers of this story would have known immediately, oh, I get it. Oh, this is a big deal that Boaz is a redeemer. But it's lost on us a little bit. So we'll get there in just a second. But for now, Ruth is taking no chances. She makes her intentions abundantly clear. She's asking Boaz to do something very big. And Boaz immediately knows it. And he doesn't blink. He doesn't blink at all. And you'd think he doesn't blink and he because he's like, yeah, absolutely, I will redeem you. I will do it. And you would think he doesn't hesitate because it's all good news. Rich, single guy finds young, attractive woman and all lived happily ever after. But it's way more complicated than that. It's way more beautiful than that. And so Boaz agrees to do it, but he notes that there is a problem. There is an issue with him being the redeemer. Someone else is a closer redeemer. Someone else essentially has rights to claim Ruth for his own first if he would like to. 
Now, I know that flies all over us, and that would never fly in this society for lots of good reasons, but within that patriarchal society, that is how it works, and that was seen to be a good thing, because what would happen, even though it's like, well, wait a minute, how can a guy just claim a woman? That was actually intended to be for the woman's good, to care for her, because she would have been in such a dangerous position as a widow. It was set up to make sure that the widows were cared for. And so Boaz says, I'll be happy to do it, but we've got a problem. There's somebody else that if he wants to make a claim on you, he can make a claim on you. And so episode three ended last week with this cliffhanger. Will Boaz and Ruth, our, our, uh, our seemingly destined couple to be together, will they get together? Will their story be happily ever after? Or will they become these star-crossed and, and, and just hopeless uh, people that, that are in love with each other but can never actually be together and it turns into this like tragic Shakespearean type thing. What is going to happen in this story? Will the law keep them from their happily ever after? Which brings us finally now to chapter four in our text today and we figure out what happens in this, uh, this kind of pivotal moment of our story. Ruth chapter four, verse one. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, just happened to come by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So if you'll remember last week, I read from Deuteronomy 25, and it went through this law of the kinsman Redeemer and what the kinsman Redeemer is supposed to do. And it's a pretty intense reading that has a lot to do with honor and doing right by the kinsmen, and, uh, which is why Boaz gathers all the men of the, the elders of the town. So when they go to gather at the gate, it's kind of part city hall, part uh, judicial system where they're, they're kind of observing what is happening and making sure that all is going as it should be within the town. And so this deal is about to go down, uh, and, and, and he wants to make sure, Boaz wants to make sure that all the honor is there, and everything happens exactly as it should. And they're about to call into, uh, call into account this law that's kind of a blend of two laws, the one from Deuteronomy 25 and some Levite property laws that are intended to keep the property within the family, and kind of blend these two laws and say, all right now, you are the redeemer, you have the option. He gathers these men around, and this guy has no idea what Boaz is about to lay out for him. He has no idea that he's about to play a major role in world history in this scene. So verse 3, then he said to the Redeemer, so this is Boaz talking to our mystery man, we never find out his name, uh, but the Redeemer, Boaz says to this would-be Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, and there is, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And then our mystery man says, well, I'll redeem it. Yeah, I'll take the land. And so basically what, what, what has happened here, I mean, it's simple enough. It sounds like our love story has come to a crashing end, uh, and we're about to meet just kind of the brutal nature of reality. 
Boaz tells this man, hey, you've got the right to this land. Do you know Elimelech? Do you remember Elimelech? Yeah, I remember Elimelech. I remember that guy. Um, he, was, he was a good guy. He, didn't he leave for a while? Yeah, he left, but he's back. Well, he's not back. His wife is back. Uh, and, and they're here, and she's got this land that has either been taken over by squatters or has been left totally undeveloped for that, uh, that at least 10 years that they've been gone. Uh, or it's kind of been used kind of like sharecropping where people have just taken it even without right or property rights uh, to it. Um, and, and Boaz tells this man, look, you, you have the right to this land. As the closest relative, you have the right to this land. It is yours if you want it. You are a closer relative to Elimelech and to Naomi than I am, and, and you, have, uh, you have the right to farm this property. You are a redeemer. You are the one that has the opportunity to take something back to repurchase it and make it yours. That's what a redeemer is. The person who buys something back in order to make it his. You are a redeemer, mystery man. You have the right to it. So at this point, this property is probably just sitting there waiting to be taken. Somebody may have been using it, but most likely it, it, it because it had been in such a uh, a time of famine. It's just gone undeveloped. It's just dry and dusty. But now that the famine's over, this, this property becomes very valuable because you can start growing grain on it. You can start doing all kinds of things with it. This property has suddenly become a great real estate investment. And while Na- Naomi had a claim to it being part of her husband, her dead husband's family, as a woman, she was not allowed to take possession of it. She needed a redeemer, a person to buy it back and take possession of it in her name. That's the definition of what a redeemer is. And now this redeemer, essentially what he would have gotten because he would have had rights to it, was all this property for either nothing or next to nothing. It would have cost him almost nothing to take this. Really, the only cost would have been Naomi. He would have had to bring Naomi back. He would have had to to, to bring her back and care for this widow who's probably older. She probably wouldn't live a whole lot longer. So basically, his only cost to get this land land back is Naomi, and that's a minimal cost for all this land and this great real estate investment. He had the right to it, and it would be a great investment. Essentially, for almost nothing, this man is about to get a very nice financial boost in his portfolio. And a nice little boost of honor within the town to go with it. So naturally, this man is all in. Yeah, I'll take it. I can take care of Naomi. I can feed her. Thanks for bringing this to my attention. I had no idea that Naomi was back. I had no idea that that land was theirs. Absolutely, I'll take it. I'd love to farm the land. Thanks, Boaz. Appreciate you letting me know. And you see, at this moment, it costs this man nothing. But he gains everything in the transaction. But Boaz is about to introduce something that completely changes the equation, completely changes the math of the would-be redeemer. Verse 5, then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And there it is. This is the big shift in the equation for our redeemer. 
Boaz pulls out the last card that he's holding in this high-stakes game with this Redeemer. He pulls out this last, this last card, but he knows whenever he lays this card, everything that's happening at the poker table completely changes. He says, I almost forgot to mention, you get the land, and I agree, it's a great piece of land, that's, that's wonderful, but you also get Ruth the Moabite. Now notice, he doesn't say Ruth the hard worker who's been working in my field for the last few months. He doesn't say Ruth the one who is so kind and who has converted and is now uh, following Yahweh just like us. He doesn't say Ruth the one who is honorable and who everyone knows is honorable. He says Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the one who is not one of our people. And Boaz knows What's about to come next? Verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Woohoo! Crisis averted. All is well. We are good. Ruth is Boaz's. Uh, Boaz is Ruth's to take now. Ruth is Boaz's to take. All is good. But why did this happen? Why the change in heart from the Redeemer. What is it that happened in this equation that, that was so that, that, that so completely changed things on the, the just the drop of a hat? If Ruth is such a catch, why wouldn't this man just take her too? Why wouldn't he want the whole package? Why just the land and not the woman? Frankly, I know a lot of guys that would take the woman and not the land, right? So why is it that, that Ruth coming in to be a part of this, why is it that that changes everything? What's going on here? This has become a very complicated transaction for this would-be redeemer because it's not just about land now. It's about a woman. And it's not just about any woman. It's about a young woman with no children if she had children, this whole Redeemer thing would be a totally moot point and never would have happened because that child would have been there to hand the land off to and to continue the, the name of the family and to continue the family line. But that's the whole point is there's no one there to continue the family name and make sure the land stays within the family lineage. And part of the Redeemer's duties weren't just to keep the land in the family, but to produce the missing heir for the sake of the family name. This is what needed to happen. So now this guy has to do his calculus in a totally different way. The, the whole equation got a lot more complicated. This isn't just how much land do I get and for how little. Instead, he's got to figure out how much land he gets, for how long will he get it, and just how much he and his children uh, are, are going to get to keep of this new land if there is a new heir that is produced by Ruth. And I'm guessing he's going to have to figure out how to explain to his wife that there's a new woman living down the, the, the hallway, this Moabite that has just shown up, which is probably a super awkward conversation too, right? So he, he's got to figure out all of this stuff. But the biggest issue is that the secured inheritance of his family is now in doubt. The inheritance that he had worked so hard to build and protect for his current family gets called into question by him being a redeemer. Because what happens if he does produce another heir through Ruth, that child would have a claim on all that inheritance, all that property, all the life that this man had built for the rest of his family. 
And this guy's just not interested in sharing everything that he's worked hard to build with the, this Moabite's kid. He's just not interested in sharing any of this stuff. He says, no thanks, I don't want this. The land and the home that I've worked so hard for to provide for my children and my children's children is now in doubt. And for what? A little bit more land and a Moabite woman. No thanks. The calculus is easy for him. It's an easy equation for him to solve. This guy doesn't need to call his accountant. This guy doesn't need to call his business manager. This guy doesn't even need to ask, especially doesn't need to ask his wife. He doesn't need to do any of those things. He doesn't need to, do, he doesn't need to go pray about it. He immediately says, oh, no, I'm out, man. I can't do that. I am not doing this at all. The introduction of Ruth makes the redemption cost so high that he immediately hands it off to Boaz and says, here, it's all yours. You take it. So let's go back to our showbiz pizza ticket redemption center. This man thought he had the deal where for like five or ten tickets that he won in just a couple of with a couple of quarters, a couple of tokens in skee-ball, that he was going to be able to get the big prize up on the top shelf that's covered in dust because nobody has managed to get that many tokens because you have to be super rich to get all the tokens to get that one big thing that's sitting up there on the top. I'm pretty sure when I was a kid, that was a Nintendo. What they had up there was like the original Nintendo, which is expensive again. But you get that up there, and, and you could get that thing. And this guy just said, oh, I hit the jackpot. I got all these, I got, I got just a couple of tickets, but I get the biggest prize that is there. But now the redemption cost has changed because of one simple addition, Ruth. That's it. That's the only thing that changed the equation. She makes the cost so high, he can't even consider it. The non-church definition of the word redemption is this. Redemption. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment. Clearing a debt. The action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment. Clearing a debt. Gaining possession in exchange for payment. But now the one that has the chance to clear the debt, the one that has now the chance to make that exchange, to take possession of the land and possession of Ruth, he looks at all he has to lose, he looks at all that it would cost him, and he says, no chance, it's not worth it. She's not worth that. I don't want it. You see, I've said this a lot in this book, but I don't think we fully understand. Ruth is worthless to this society completely worthless. She brings nothing good to the equation for this man. She's a foreigner. She's barren, but still in childbearing age. She's saddled with a bitter mother-in-law and fiercely committed to this mother-in-law. She has no money. She can pay no bride price for a would-be husband. She's nothing to entice a man to marry her, only negative after negative after negative. Not only is she not desirable, as in like she's neutral, she she's, she's actively brings 
to the equation that she is undesirable. Get her away from me. She actively harms me if she detracts from the potential deal. She's not neutral. She's subtraction and subtraction by a lot. To redeem Ruth for this potential redeemer is a costly redemption. One deemed far too costly for this man. So he passes. Oh, but our man Boaz, he knew what was coming and he played his cards just right. And this was his plan all along. Read with me in verse 7. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning, concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. This is a handshake deal. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are all witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. So Boaz celebrates for what his his heart desires can now actually become reality. He can redeem Ruth. He can bring the land back to the family name, and he can care for Naomi. And most importantly, he gets the girl. Boaz gets the girl. And Ruth is now his. What she wanted to have happen, what he wanted to have happen, has now come true. And he fulfills the prayer that he offered Ruth in chapter 2 and the request that Ruth offered in chapter 3, that he would spread his garment or that he would spread his wings over her and give her refuge, give her a home, give her a shelter, give her a safe place. Or as Naomi said at the beginning of chapter 3, give her rest. Friends, tell me you see it here. Tell me you see the beauty of this moment. Tell me you see the beauty of what is happening here, not in just the love story. I love the love story too. It's great. But tell me you see the beauty of the redemption of what Boaz has done here. The Redeemer, the one who can repurchase and buy back, has been faithful to uphold the promise of God's law. Boaz looks at Ruth, and where everyone else sees a Moabite that is undesirable, he sees a bride and a future. He looks at her and he says, this is the one that I love. I want her as my own. His heart leaps as he takes her as his own. Friends, this is our story. We are Ruth. We bring nothing to the equation in our relationship with God. We bring nothing that would make us desirable. In fact, what we bring is what would make us actively undesirable as enemies to God. We come before him and it should draw us away from him. He should turn from us repulsively away from us. We bring nothing to the equation. We too are worthless in the math here. To redeem us, to buy us back, to pay our debt is a massive cost. For us to have a redeemer, there is a massive cost that must be paid for someone because our debt is massive. Our sin has accumulated so deeply and so much. For us to find a redeemer, we are far worse than Ruth. 
Yes, we are foreigners. Yes, we need someone to bring us in. But we bring nothing that would draw us. Everyone would look at us and say, I will not redeem it. I cannot redeem it for the cost is too much for me. And so that should be the end of your story. So it should be the end of my story. Our redemption is too costly. There's not enough tickets in all the world to buy us back. There's just not enough. We are unobtainable. Not because we are worth too much, but because we cost too much. That should be the end of our story. And it's in that equation that God looks at us and He says, not for me. I will redeem it. I will buy it back. I will take on the debt. I will redeem her. I will redeem him. But understand, this isn't because God saw a good investment in us. This isn't because God looked at us and said, I need this guy on my team. I need this guy on my team. She's got so much to offer. She adds so much to my portfolio. No, no, no. This isn't because we are worth much. It's because God is coming for us and loves us. It's because he sought to take us under his wings and to give us rest and to give us refuge. Why? It is only because he loves us. That's it. It's the only reason. That's it. He gains nothing. We gain everything. Not only does he gain nothing in this transaction, it is a costly redemption for God. It is a costly redemption for him. One that, that by all accounts sh- could, should never have been paid. Because he, he, could have, he could have said, and he, by all accounts, should have said, I don't need them. They bring nothing to my portfolio. They bring nothing to me. But instead, the picture we get is one that John tells us in 1 John chapter 4. He says this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, not that we pursued Him. This is not that He is responding to our invitation. It is that He has pursued us. He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So their propitiation, that's another word that kind of gets lost, but it ties right there in with redemption. That word propitiation, it means the payment for or the debt canceling or the appeasement on behalf of the other party. It's the purchase price. It is the redemption value. And what it says is that God loves us, not that we have loved him, but he has loved us and sent his son to be the redemption price for our sins, to pay off the debt. You see, the redemption was deeply costly for God. It was deeply costly for him, just like it was the would-be redeemer for Ruth. But God didn't say, nah, that costs too much, I'll pass. Let them continue to flounder on in in their sin and in their debt. 
Maybe they'll make it, maybe they won't. No, no, no. He says, I will take them, I will redeem them, I will purchase them, and I will bring them under my wings, and I will give them rest, and I will give them food, and I will give them hope, and I will give them a home and a place. Do you see what is here? How much we cost. We cost him everything. Do you want to know how much God loves you? then look at the cost that he paid in order to have you. He paid with his only begotten son. God didn't look at our sin and say the cost is too high. He looked at us and he says, the cost is infinitely high and I'm the only one that can repay it. And I'm the only hope that they have. And so because I love them, I will redeem them. Friends, this is the Christian faith. This is our faith. This is what we celebrate. This is what we sing of. Don't let anyone sell you some mixed bag of good works, nice guy aspirations, a little bit of political jargon, and a, and a, and a little guilt, and call that Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity isn't us just doing a few nice things Casting a vote in a certain way and then feeling a little bit guilty when we do bad things and then showing up on Sunday in order to pay that debt. Now, the debt was infinitely high and there's only one that could redeem it. There's only one that could rise to that place. Christianity looks like Boaz who is willing to pay the cost no matter the price in order to have his bride and she wanted to be his bride so it is with jesus he wanted his bride so he paid the ransom price and we so desperately want to be his friends this is what it means to be redeemed this is what it means we are a part of a of a grand love story not one full of like all the romance and all the like gushy stuff, but one that says, I will pay a deep price in order to have this one. The price that no one else can pay. The debt was so high. We can't overstate, just like I can't overstate how little Ruth brings to the equation, I can't overstate how little we bring. We bring nothing. And yet God says, I will redeem it. I will take this one as mine. I will have this one as my bride. Undesirable. Unwanted. An enemy to God. Full of filth. Full of sin. Full of dirt. And offering nothing. I will redeem it. And so we have a redeemer. Today we can stand here and we can know we have a redeemer. So the question is, will you be redeemed? Will you say, yes, this is who I want. This is the one that I want because the offer of redemption is there if you will take it. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
to say, I, I need to be redeemed. I need to have redemption as a part of my story. Not trying to earn favor with a would-be redeemer. Not trying to earn favor with one who would, who would potentially rescue me. Not trying to earn anything. Not trying to, to show up and say, I deserve any of this. Because if we show up in town and we say, here's what I bring to the table, there's no one that can still pay the cost of redemption. It's too high. Only Jesus. So this is what the book of Ruth celebrates. Next week we'll come back and we'll see the end of this. And we'll see exactly how it points to Jesus. And how it teaches us about the difference between the shattered saviors in our life and the whole savior in Jesus, our redeemer. This morning I just pray that you would revel in the beauty of the story. Revel in the beauty of the story. Celebrate with Boaz. Celebrate with Ruth. Celebrate with Naomi at this beautiful moment of what has happened. The wedding had to be an epic one. I wish I had time to go to Revelation and read about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the one that we get to be a part of. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we confess that we are we are not worthy of any of it. We are not lovable. We are not pursuable. We are not, um, there is nothing that would draw anyone or anything to us. And it is that that we present before you and we just plead with mercy from you that you would redeem us. Not because we have earned redemption, but only because you love us. Father, that is our prayer this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.